I appreciate the uh, responsiveness and ways that you guys have received from the Lord already this week, last night, and today through the, the breakout sessions and just have heard good things from that. Um, and uh, the, the, the blessing of what the Lord does in a setting like this is there's always more. There's always more to, to encounter, to be aware of. For the Lord to call to mind, identify in us, and so I trust that He will He'll continue to minister to us tonight and, and in the sessions that, that are still ahead of us. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, well, if you go ahead and turn back to First Thessalonians chapter one, and we're going to pick up where we left off there. But this thing is totally crooked and, and half destroyed. But that's all right. Uh, first, we're going to play. A game called Real or Ridiculous. I uh, mentioned last night the way that clickbait headlines try to get our attention. We, we live in a world of quantity in which real quality kind of gets drowned out because there's so much that's saying, hey, notice me, uh, follow this link and come pay attention to what I have to say. And then clickbait headlines are just a, a classic illustration of how that works. So I'm going to put a headline on the board and you have to guess if this is real or ridiculous. Are you ready to play? Think you can do it? Think you're discerning? All right, let's do it. Uh, first, is, is this headline real or ridiculous? This man cooking nachos will make you more emotional than you'd expect. It's so ridiculous, it has to be real. And, of course, it has to be on the junk drawer of the internet known as BuzzFeed. Uh, that is, uh, that's to be expected. All right, what about this one? Florida woman marries giant Ferris wheel called Bruce. Are you saying real because you've seen this before? <laughs> I like the way you think, Nathan. That's good. That is, that's a real headline. Now, I think they're kind of fudging on some of the language here, but apparently that was, that was a ride to remember right there. Um, what about this? My brain exploded after watching someone solve this crossword puzzle. Y'all just saying that because if he puts two real ones, by now it's got to be, yes, that's ridiculous. You're right. You're right. You know how it works. Uh, They called her the world's ugliest girl, and her response is unbelievably beautiful. I literally cried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to put up much more of that, but all right. Um, Chick Magnet literally attracts women with his magnetic teeth. Why Why do you think that's real, Miss Patrice? (laughs) <laughs> ridiculous but that, that's a good sign now that I, I don't know if this is encouraging or concerning that you're that good at, at trying to figure out whether or not uh, this is a real headline or not because uh, that, that maybe shows a little bit of experience uh, with a lot of these things but uh, there is a lot demanding our attention today and, and there's a lot of junk in the mix and it's funny to watch the, the different methods that clickbait headlines try to manipulate you to try to pull you in you know they just use this overly excited and exaggerated language you saw it in some of those right I I was literally stunned I literally fell off my chair I literally set my house on fire and ran around naked I don't know something like that Uh, it kind of reminds me of of the classic scene from Princess Bride where you keep using that word I do not think it means what you think it means, right? Uh, But literally comes out a good bit. Uh, One of the ways that they do this is that they actually appeal to our pride, all right? So uh, raise your hand, uh, just be honest, if you've ever posted on some form of social media the results to a quiz that you took. 
All right, all right. That's good. We got a few honest people in here. Um, how does this work, right? right you, you take some, some online quiz. It's testing your knowledge in, in who knows what, geophysics or Disney characters. You know, it could be anything. And then, uh, yeah, now you know what I'm talking about, Molly, and you know you're guilty. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, but what happens, you, you, you click through all the slideshows, get your all the ads uh, come up there, and they, they make money off of that. And then you got a 95% score on this. And, and then right beneath that is a share button, right? And so then you can publish that, hey, I scored 95%. I still know my math skills or, you know, whatever the, uh, the results are for the quiz. And then somebody else sees that and says, hmm, they got 95%. I wonder if I could do that well. You know, they start to compare themselves to, to that result. And what do they do? They go to the web page. And what happens? They make money when people go to their web page. And so you thought you were really special, uh, but they're just using you for for something. But, but, but here's what's interesting, because that characterizes a lot of our culture today. But in all of this, we're also a culture that, that really values authenticity. And in a growing way, right, we're, we're tired of all of the junk. We, we want quality. We, amid all the exaggerations and empty promises, we want something honest. We want to know someone who is real who is genuinely, authentically human. Now, the ironic thing is that it's possible to aim at being authentic in a way that's just a show for other people. You know, it's this posture, maybe you've seen people who do this kind of thing where they kind of have this, I just couldn't care less about anything else in the world. And, you know, there's like this emo version of that and there's a hipster version of that. But beneath that, it's really, I care desperately what everybody thinks about me, so much so that I just want to exude this personality that I don't care. I'm just above everything else, right? It, it's, it looks like it's authentic, but it's really just a faux authenticity. It's kind of like uh, buying jeans that have holes in them or that distressed look. And, you know, it seems like you've had them for a long time and there are all kinds of adventures and stories that you could tell about the experience you had in these jeans when really they're just uh, cheap imitation, right? Um, but here's the challenge, right? If you aim at being impressive or influential, pe- people will eventually see right through that and be turned off by it. But if you just want to serve and represent what's true, then you will have an effect on people. That's just how it's worked, because then they're encountering something totally different than the self-obsessed world that's around them. Listen, no one, no one is more compelling as the Lord Jesus Christ. No one ever lived a more authentic life. And yet, no one was less self-aware than he was. And I want, to be, I want to be like him. I just, when I read Jesus in the Gospels and when I hear the ways that he interacts with people and I, I hear the sound of his voice and the truth and what he is sharing in the life that he lived, you know, we just saying, I, I want to be like you. And hope the more that we know about Christ, there, there, there's this sense that you're, you're something different and I'm glad you're different because I'm not and I need you to be different in my place and yet I want to be more like the way that you are because it's not like what I encounter and everything else in this, in this world. And here in, in, in this letter of Thessalonians, Paul notices something in this church. They remind him of someone, and it's the likeness of Jesus. And so that's our quality for tonight. It's looking like 
Jesus. So if you'd read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Now, now remember, we discussed this last night. This is just months after these believers have come to know Christ. And and so uh, most of us, here's something interesting to think. Most of us in this room have probably been Christians longer than these Thessalonians have. You have more advantages than they have, right? You have more years of history of knowing the gospel, of knowing who Jesus is and what he came to do, right? It's just really striking here, and yet for them... The transformation is already obvious, right? Already they've become an example to others, and, and apparently this is the way that salvation works. Uh, a thinker named Dallas Willard gives this illustration of something he calls barcode faith, and this is the way that some people approach a life of faith. And you know, there are there's really only one item that will get me out of my house at any time of day, no matter what's going on, to go to the grocery. And that is if we are out of ice cream, right? So there, the, few other things can motivate me to show up at Winn-Dixie like ice cream can. Um, and, 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 and my wife and I, we're, we're kind of on the same page in this. We notice, hey, it's getting low. We need to make sure the next hit is, I don't know, uh, is in supply. Um, but here's the thing. The way, the way a barcode works, right, um, the scanner just, just, just cares about what's on the barcode. It doesn't care about the contents. And so that could be ice cream. Or that could be dog food. What's inside doesn't matter, right? All all that matters is how it interprets that outside label. And and the thing is, you know, you could take the label from the ice cream and the label from the dog food and switch it and scan it, and and, and the scanner doesn't care, right? All that matters is what's registering for it. And so it could think, oh, yep, ice cream, uh, $7 or some ridiculous price, whatever it is we're willing to pay for our addiction. Um, $7, you know, ice cream, uh, but really that's, that's dog food. And the, the point he's making there is that's the way that some people approach the Christian life. That being saved, that knowing Jesus, it's like a label. It's like something uh, that identifies you that, you know, when you go into heaven and you're scanned, then, 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 then you're safe. But it doesn't have any real relationship between the label and the contents of what's inside of you. And that's not how Christianity works. That's not how salvation works in us. It, it has a real effect on us. It, it really changes us. It, it really makes us different, right? Uh, Mark Howell says, the presence of the gospel in a person's heart will always be demonstrated by the power of the gospel in a person's life. The gospel is not something that we try on like a new pair of shoes. In fact, we don't try on the gospel at all in a very real sense, when we embrace the gospel, the gospel embraces us, right? And we saw that last night, right? It's not really so much just how we have come to embrace God. 
It is that. But first and foremost, it's that God has determined to have us and to win us. And when he embraces us, the result is he has us. We're his, and that has an effect on us. And he says, thus the gospel does more than reform our behavior. It transforms our being. Now, the thing is, that doesn't happen all at once, right? And so we don't want to necessarily misapply this letter and say, you know, these guys, they came to know Christ, and boom, they, they were perfect. I mean, sure, every now and then they, they went like five miles over the speed limit, but other than that, they had no issues. Actually, they had a few issues that Paul needs to address here. And so not everything changes in our life at once. In fact, you know, there are, there are believers in this room who are in their, in their 50s and 60s, and I won't point you guys out, but they'll tell you there's a, there's a continuing struggle, right? There, there's still something in their heart that says, I want to be like you, and I'm not yet, but they're fighting in the direction to be more like him. And so here's my question for you. Have you grown as a Christian this year? Really? I mean, mean, think about it for yourself. Can you identify ways that you're different? Is the 2016 version of you identical to the 2015 version of you? Or worse? Could you actually point to last year and say, actually, I... I was kind of more concerned about the things of God than I am right now. Is there identifiable progress in the Christian life when it comes to your attitudes, when it comes to the things that you'll, you'll allow to sit on your mind and roam around in your thoughts? You, you quicker to challenge them when, when you recognize that thought's not of God. That is a sinful attitude. That is the wrong way to think about that person, to judge that person, to respond to that situation. That's an attitude of complaining. Is there, is there a recognition of that? Or do you kind of just sit there in those thoughts? Is there a change in your behavior, a change in, in, in how you interact with the commandments of God and in, in how you interact with other people? Right? And, and, and the goal here, and this was just clear, and what we just read is not... Hey, guys, get your act together. Get your behavior together because that's what becoming a Christian is all about. That's not the point. And I hope we're clear on that. But as we've also said, your behavior matters. Your attitudes matter because if you're made new, if you've been awakened by the love of God as, as we've just sung, you look alive. And you look, you look more and more alive every year. And so that's a question for you to consider. Can, can you say, I look more like Jesus now than ever before? And if you can't say that, then, then there's a disconnect somewhere. Somewhere there's a problem. Somewhere you have gotten off track from the Lord's intentions and will for your life. Here's the relationship between last night's session and, and tonight, um, just conceptually. If you're, if you're only giving God permission to occupy the leftover spaces of your world, if being a follower of Christ is just one identity among many other desires and pursuits, you know, that kind of compartmentalized faith we talked about last night, then it's not surprising if your progress in the Christian life just inches forward. And guys, and I don't want to overqualify this, 
growth takes time and it takes effort. And we want to be patient with ourselves and with one another in our growth. But might it be that for some of us, we've grown comfortable without much real improvement taking place in our relationship with the Lord because we have normalized that. Because the people around us look like that. Because the culture that we live in doesn't value that. Has that had an effect on you? These are things we can consider tonight. There's a difference between doing the try-on approach and the transformation approach. In the Bible, sanctification, which the guys learned that word earlier today, it's just a, it's a big word that means becoming more like Christ. It's something that happens to us, but it's also something that we do, right? So pull these two things together in your mind. God does it, and the way that God does it is through what we do, right? And, and so we have responsibilities. We don't have ability. We don't have power. That doesn't come from who we are naturally. That, that, that's totally supernatural, right? Power, the Holy Spirit, full conviction, those are supernatural things. And then they have real effects in what we do and what we engage in, what we pursue. And, and so we can aim at this. God needs to do the work, and he works through our faith-filled effort. And so tonight, I want to help us kind of sharpen the target. Well, what, what am I aiming at? Because it takes intentionality. You have to really know, if, you, if you're going to be like Jesus, you have to know what is he like and what is he not like. And how can I be more like him? And so what are the qualities of a Christ-like life. He says this, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So these Thessalonians did not know the earthly Jesus during his lifetime. They didn't have any interaction with him. They can't say, oh yeah, Jesus of Nazareth, this is the color hair he had, and this is what he sounded like. They didn't see him, but they saw people who had encountered him. They saw people like the Apostle Paul who had seen the risen Jesus. And so they looked at him, and they they saw, okay, here's what you're like. I want to be more like you because I see you're more like Jesus than I am. And so they imitated Paul and Silas and Timothy. And, and, And so... Uh, how can we find out what these guys are like? Well, we actually are told that in chapter 2. So flip over to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in verse 1, this is Paul reminding them of what their experience was like when they were there. He says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So 
being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. So I want to draw out some thoughts from the example that they provided for the Thessalonians and what ultimately comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so first... They are not selfish, but sacrificial. He says in verse 8 that they were ready to share their own selves with them, right? Here's myself, and that doesn't matter to me first and foremost, and so you can have it. It's yours. It exists to serve you. Now, what's striking about this is that he mentions in verse 2, I hope you notice this, that when they came to Thessalonica, that was already after they had suffered mistreatment in Philippi. And Acts chapter 16 tells us about this, that in Philippi, Paul and Silas, they, they were stripped and beaten with rods. Right? Can you imagine the, the headline about that? I literally dropped my jaw when I saw what happened to Paul and Silas next. Right? You would not believe that. You would, you'd put that as ridiculous, but that, that's what happened to them. They, they were stripped and beaten with rogues. And, and, and the text says that after a severe flogging, they were thrown in prison for the night before they were pulled out secretly and sent out of town. And then they arrive in Thessalonica, still bearing the bruises and the scars from their lot last stop. But not to take a vacation. Not to just relax and heal and, oh man, just, we deserve a break, right? But to give of themselves again to people in need of hearing about Christ. This seems exhausting. But you know what it is? This is people who have been freed of a vision of life being about them. That's not what motivates them any longer. Mark Howell says, If a relationship with Jesus Christ really does transform people, then one of the first things to go will be our selfishness. Genuine love is willing to go the distance, even to the point of exhaustion and weariness. It is a love that knows no limits and finds its ultimate source in the love of God. Now, too often we place limits on what we'll do for the benefit of others, but we will go to great lengths when it comes to serving ourselves. And sometimes people think that they have a laziness problem or they look on somebody else's life and they see that that's, that's just a lazy, unmotivated person. Like they must be totally drained of energy and just have no reason to do anything. But, but if you really look at what's going on, and, 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 and guys, I know, you know, in small group time that I've sat with you, this comes up, right? This is something you guys would mention, that laziness can be an issue that you struggle with. But, but if you look beneath it, it's not always just a laziness problem. What it really is is a selfishness problem because they're only lazy about the things that don't serve them, but they're willing to work really hard if it'll get them what, what they want. You know, why is it? that you'll spend so much energy on the field and allow your coach to get in your face while, while you'll put up resistance to your parents when they want you to clean the house or go to some boring event that you don't want to sit through. Now, why is it then you'll say, oh, Mom, I'm just really too tired to have to do this? Really? Well, that's not what you said to your coach. That's not what you said to your dance instructor. Why not? 
because that happens to be something that serves your interests. The political humorist P.J. O'Rourke said that everyone wants to save the world, but no one wants to help mom with the dishes. So let's think practically here, right? Do, Do you help mom with the dishes? You serve around the house? You there to have a concern about the needs of those around you that you you live in a world in which your own comfort and what you want isn't the only agenda for the day right does it require an act of congress to get you to take out the trash here's something to consider do you desire to help your siblings when 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 they experience a need when it seems like they're struggling through something in life something they don't understand or they, they just really need a hand in this moment? Is that, is that somebody you go toward? Or do you avoid them and say, oh, tough for them. Glad I'm not dealing with that right now. Good luck with that. It's about time you had to face something because mom and dad have always been on my case about whatever. Is that something you do? Look, that's, a, that's, that's selfishness. It's laziness and it's selfishness. And it's not what we find here in this text. Do you, do you pursue things that don't happen to line up with your preferences if it helps someone else? What if it's something you don't like? Something you don't want to do. But you notice this is really going to serve somebody else. Listen, there, there is an epidemic today of young people opting out of things because it's something that makes them uncomfortable or it isn't something they're, they're totally interested in. And there apparently isn't this awareness that, well, maybe this isn't really about you. You know, maybe you're just supposed to be working really hard so that somebody else benefits. But it's like that's not part of your definition of life. For some people, it's like you're not even aware that that would actually inform how you should go about decisions, whether or not you're going to participate in something or pursue something or do something. There's more at stake here than just how this affects you. Like whatever it is, if that's a friendship, if it's a youth group or one day a church or one day a marriage, if, if you're ultimately in that to serve you, then you will give up on it when it becomes difficult. When it's no longer getting you excited and meeting the needs that you, th- you thought it would, you will be ready to move on. And Paul and Silas and Timothy have gotten beaten out of Philippi and they show up in Thessalonica and they're ready to give more. And there's no benefit to them in this other than eternal joy in Christ. Andrew Young says, Christians who serve out of a sense of conviction and call, there's that word conviction we looked at last night, they persevere no matter how difficult their circumstances. God strengthens them to stick at their posts. Those acting out of self-interest, however, tend to falter when the going gets tough. Stickability especially in times of difficulty and opposition, is a proof of genuineness. You can use another word, right? That's a proof of quality right there. When you stick to it, when, when you keep going, even when it's no longer exciting for you. That's what we see here. This model of not selfish but sacrificial. Second 
Paul presents to them that they were not people-pleasing, but they sought to please one person. And, and he highlights the nature of his ministry here, right? how he sought to win them over. And we looked last night in Acts chapter 17 where they opened up from God's word and they reasoned with the scriptures and there was something in the Thessalonians that said, hey, that makes sense and I want in on that. And Paul's reminding them, hey, you know what? There were some methods that we didn't use when we came to you. There were some things that we didn't do. Uh, We weren't driven by a desire to appeal to something in you that would just be motivating who you are on the outside. They were were driven by a different motivation. Look at verse 5 here. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Here's something for all of us to consider. What are you trying to get from people? When you do the people thing and you do friendships and relationships and and every social setting that's available, social media included, what, what are you after there, right? Do they exist to provide you with a sense of affirmation and identity? Is that why you're in on this? Is that why you have friends? Right? It not, might not be something we're aware that we're even doing. But here we're given a little bit of insight. Uh, Mark Sayers in his book, The Vertical Self, he, he talks about the, the difference between a vertical sense of self and a horizontal sense of self. A vertical self means you go to God to find out who you are. When you ask questions like, am I significant? Do I matter? What am I supposed to be about in this world, right? Teenage questions right there. Am I significant? Do I matter? What am I supposed to be about in this world? Those are the questions that are running in the back of your mind and beneath the things that you do. And and a vertical sense of self goes to God to find the answers to that. Right? I, I'm significant because I'm made in the image of God. I matter, not just because I'm really special and awesome, but because as we saw last night, God has for all eternity loved me and said that I am his, and I matter to him, and that's enough for me. And I know what I'm supposed to do in this world because I have that calling from God. But, but a horizontal sense of self it's like you go to people and you're trying to detect from them the answers to this, to this question. Who am I? Am I significant? Do you think that I matter? Please tell me. Do I matter in this world? What am I supposed to be about? Maybe your applause or your laughter or, or, or what you like about me and don't like tells me what kind of person I'm supposed to be. And so you shape who you are based upon what you see in them. And he writes this, With God playing no real authoritative role in informing identity, people look to others as the ultimate judge. Whereas the vertical self looks to heaven for favor and approval, the horizontal self looks to the world for approval and acceptance. For people who hold a horizontal sense of self, the creation and cultivation of a public image are paramount. Peers and society act as a mirror. We look to them to gain a sense of identity, yet they can only relay back to us the messages that we communicate to them. You can't describe yourself as cool. Others must label you cool. 
In that way, our identities are dependent on what others think of us. However, this means that we do not think of others as being created in the image of God. Now, this is interesting. When you do this to yourself, you actually dehumanize the people around you. That's the point that he's making here, right? We turn them into mirrors with one purpose, to tell us who we are, which means we're using them. We're not really caring for them as who they are, made in God's image, but what can you do for me? What kind of affirmation can you give to me? They are our audience. And we live in a day in which the amount of people who can serve as your audience expands and expands. Whereas people with a vertical sense of self look to their God-given identity to find a sense of self, those with a horizontal self can only hope that they will project the right image into culture so they will receive the right messages from their peers. Therefore, even the shy are drawn into the constant pursuit of putting out a public image, of running a personal public relations campaign in order to receive messages of meaning. It doesn't matter what you really think or feel. All that matters is what people see. Now, here's the thing. If, if that's where you get your sense of identity from, from other people, then that is going to shape how you approach them. So Paul says here that we, we never came with words of flattery. We, we didn't need to use that. We didn't have this pretext of greed, of what can you do for me? What can I get out of you, either money or status or something else? And so I'm going I'm to use certain methods there. And the one that he highlights here is, is flattery. If that's what you want, if you want glory from people, then you'll manipulate them. And you might not even realize it. Right? When you flatter somebody you enter into this kind of exchange relationship with them. And if, I, if I say some things that make you feel really good about you and uh, you know, highlight who you are, then you'll do the same for me, right? At, at some point, there, there's a return on this, right? And there's the kind of the classic scenario that you, know, you guys haven't had to face something like this before, but the person who flatters their boss you know, you're just, you, you, you're, the way that you run the company is it's just really helpful and excellent. And I'm just so glad to be a part of your team. And they, they want that person to think about them in a favorable light. And that'll affect the raise that they get in the future, right? You don't have to face those circumstances. But there are other people that you want payment from. You want a return on investment. And what you invest is flattery. And, and listen, this is, this is a growing problem. This has always been an issue. Right? This, this, this is 2,000 years earlier that Paul's writing this and recognizing this is a temptation for people. But, you know, well, I think that uh, my generation, you know, the, the, the teenagers in my generation, where we struggled with was kind of tearing people down and what kind of snarky comments can I make to humiliate them and be sarcastic, right? That, that's still a problem as well. But actually, culturally, that's not popular as much anymore. Now it's kind of, like I said last night, the everybody's special and aren't you so great thing going on. And so I think where we've kind of shifted is flattery is a big problem today. And it's just funny that the different places that you'll see it show up. Um, you know, I follow a lot of teenagers on Instagram just to try to get a feel of, of you know, where we at in terms of our culture. And just to read some of those comments and just the, the, the blatant flattery that's taken place there 
and, 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 and just without any awareness that that's what's going on there. So there's, there seems to be, and I don't know if girls in particular are susceptible to this, uh, but there's kind of this, this agreement, this unwritten agreement that if I like your photos and if I put fire emojis on, on your images, you'll do that for me, right? And then, and then the, 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 the comments become just so uh, ridiculous and, and, and kind of weird, like, I'm just so obsessed with your eyebrows. <laughs> It's like, really? Uh, I'm not giving you my home address. Uh, some people begin to talk like psychopaths, like, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. I just want to cut your face open with knives. Uh, yeah, anyway, I don't know if they've been that extreme, but there's, <laughs> it's like, I, you're, so, you're, you're so beautiful, I hate you, you know? Uh, but there's this, this sense that uh, if, if I use this really extreme, uh, flattering language for you, you'll do that for me, Right? Now, I'm not saying that every time you compliment something, that, that's going on inside of you. I hope we're uh, encouraging one another in what we see of God and people. But then again, if we're only focusing on outward appearance, and if there's a motive in us hoping that maybe you'll see that in me, maybe there's more going on there. And, and, and the reality is that flattery can turn into gossip and slander very quickly when self-interest rather than honesty is what dictates your speech about people, right? Gossip and slander, they're a way of weaponizing your speech, of, of using your words to assault somebody. It's a way of talking about somebody else in a way that's designed to make people think less of them, right? Did you realize that's a problem? When you say things about people with the hope that maybe they'll kind of decrease in other people's eyes a little bit. Yeah, you think that guy's really athletic, but I mean, the way he fumbled that play, it just was, you know, it was kind of obnoxious, you know. So people have him here, and you kind of bring him down to here. Now, if you, if you exchange something that they've done to you or something that you found out about, well, did you know what she did the other night? You know, whatever, whatever the content is, the attempt is... here's me, and here's this other person and what people think, and maybe I can just bring them down some because I'm so freaked out about how people see me. And so the same motivation behind flattery and causing you to inflate somebody and build them out is the same one that takes out the pen and says, let me pop that. That can't stay like that. That person can't keep thinking they're, they're awesome, right? You'll want to expose people if they're in the spotlight because really you should be. And the thing is, listen, this is something you will need to know today and for the next 45 years of your life probably. And then maybe after that, you kind of are okay. I don't know. I don't know if like women in their 70s and 80s or whatever have a gossiping problem but, uh, and, and men and everybody else. But, but, but no matter where you are in life, you will justify gossip. You'll have a good reason to do it when somebody's hurt you. And so you won't even discern that's what's going on. Because you know that person was mean and they they cut me to my inside the way they made me feel, what they said about me, what they did. And so you're going to pick up whatever, whatever weapon you have, and maybe you don't feel as powerful as that person. Maybe you don't feel like you have the same social standing, but you got words, and you have an audience. you got an audience of two or three other people that you can share this information with them, and you will feel right in doing it 
because you're hurt. And listen, when we are hurt by others, and I know ways we have been, ways people in this room have been torn down or bullied, or we can either go to Christ to receive his healing and to allow us to treat that person in the way that he would intend and be like Jesus and how he handled those who hurt him. Or we can pick up the weapons of our words because our pride has been hurt. And you will justify doing that. There's another side to manipulative speech. You see, there, there, it's a way of motivating people with words that are untethered from the truth. And so he puts it in verse 3. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He says, we, we just were here to be honest. We just wanted to be honest with you. When, when, we, when we engage in manipulation in, in either its nasty or seemingly nice forms, it's because we want something from people. We're using them for what they can do for us. And Jesus never did that. He never had any ulterior motives in how he interacted with the people around him. So something for you to consider. Are you authentic in your relationships? Do we really get you? Or do we get some kind of show? Do we get some kind of managed image? What drives us to these methods is a, is a motive of people pleasing, and that's what we need to be released from. Look at verse 4. This is what he says. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Right? Who's the judge of significance for you? Whose opinion do you want to be in tune with it? Is it, is it God's? Or is it those around you? Who would you really hope to hear from them? I like you. I love you. If you're attached to those on this horizontal level and you're driven to make sure they are pleased, and this is what shows up in your life when you'd rather impress people than be faithful to God. And, and, and here's the reality is that God tests our hearts. God sees through everything. Now, people see through what we do more than we realize. Right? You, you, you just, as you grow up, you develop a skill to kind of know, I think what they're really after is, in part because you know you do that. <laughs> and the more you're just aware of what you do, you can kind of smell it when, when, when that's coming from them. So sometimes we think, I'm just really awesome, and, and people are seeing right through that. But the reality is, even if we fool everyone else, God sees through everything. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what, what is reigning there. We're going to talk about idols tomorrow night. He, he knows what has our affections. He knows what's the reason we do what we do. Why do you do that and why do you avoid that? Why do you run toward that and why will you have nothing to do with that? Is that just good motives? Maybe you'll tell other people that and excuse it. But is there more going on there? God knows. 
And, and this, is, this is sobering. Mark Howell says, this conviction has the potential to sober you and to set you free. It is sobering because God examines our hearts. He knows if you are the real thing or a cheap substitute. He knows the motives behind what you do. And he sees through the excuses of why you do not do what you ought to do. Here's why it's freeing. Here's how it can set you free. John Stott says, To be accountable to God is to be delivered from the tyranny of human criticism. Right? When you just really care about what people think, that, that, that can be enslaving. What you do is you, you, you put yourself in a cage and you hand to somebody else the key, please let me out of the cage because I'm locked up here. And, and, and something that you say, some way about how you respond, that's going to let me out. Now, the thing is, they're inside their own cage, and they don't care about your key, right? They're just in their own world, locked up themselves, and so they're not going to be much help from you. But if you want to be delivered from this, it's this. We didn't live to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts and knows what is there and whose opinion matters. And we're already given God's primary opinion of us in Christ. Everything that is fake about us, everything that could be exposed about us, everything that we hope nobody ever finds out about, that was already judged. It was already found wanting. And it was judged on the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the acceptance and all the approval and all the vindication we could ever long for is already ours when he came out of the grave and God said, I accept him. And he said that about you and me in him. I accept him. I accept her. And, and, and too often we, we can treat that as just familiar old news and move on to acceptance somewhere else. I want to be settled in who we are in Christ. All right, a few other of these quickly. Not phony, but holy. He says in chapter 2, verse 10, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. I, I just want us to recover. I want us to recover holiness being something that we're after, something that is positive, something that there, there is a, an agreement as, as we're following Christ together, as, as we are the people of God, right? Being the people of God isn't something eventually you grow into. If you're his, you're a part of the people of God. And, 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 and a word that God uses to describe his people is that they are holy people. That's what they look like. That's what characterizes them. And so there should be an expectation that we would hold that for ourselves and one another, that, that we're going to be about holiness. And too often, what we, we, what we fight to manage is not holiness, but status, right? Here's, here's who I am in this, in this world. When God calls us to care about something, to, to give attention to something about us, and it's this. When I, when I display what I display in this world, to my friends, in the settings of life that I live in, are they coming away with, man, that person's awesome, or that person's a real dork who thinks they're awesome, (laughs) or is it Jesus is really different? Here's something set apart. 
Here is something unique. Here is something that's not like the same stale, self-seeking, empty, thrill-pursuing world around us. You know what? I think Jesus is, is ignorable in this world because of how we represent him. Like he's, he's somebody that, you know, still not too many people are, are antagonistic toward Jesus. And so, you know who I really hate? It's that Jesus guy. You know, even, even today, the more and more secular we are, you don't have that going on too much. They're fine. They're fine with him kind of sitting in that back row over there in, inside of the room, but ignored. Not really one who matters. And part of the problem is People who follow Christ follow a Jesus that they display from their lives who can be ignored because to them, he's a face in the crowd. He's not different. He's just like everyone else. Guys, there's something weird here in the Apostle Paul. And everything that he's describing, this is weird stuff, but it's weird in a good way. But some of us are so concerned about not being weird. Now we don't value what God is calling us to here in the ways that he is wanting us to be distinct in this world, distinct in what we applaud, different in what excites us, different in, in how we define success, different in, in whether, and in, in, in Pastor Keith Bunting on the final session is going to give us some thoughts on this, different in whether or not we're running after right now or, or the next two years of life or whether or not our aims are lifted above all that's passing away in this world and we are looking to something eternal while the world around us chases after stuff that is trivial and that is wasting away. Like the person who's got their eyes set on eternity, that's weird. It's weird in this world. But it's compelling. This is what Mark Sayers says. He says, I began to realize that our lives have stopped speaking to the culture around us. The world looks at us and we look almost the same as the world. Slowly, inch by inch, we have replaced the biblical command to be holy with the quest for status. One of the reasons the early church grew at such a phenomenal rate was that the lives of the early Christians spoke so strongly to their neighbors. There was something different about them, something that spoke of an all, another reality, right? another quality here, an alternative way of living to the culture around them. The early Christians lived lives of holiness that drew others to them and their life-giving message. The early church understood their identity was rooted in Christ, not the surrounding culture. Therefore, it is no wonder that across the Western world, so few are coming to know Christ while thousands exit the church back door. They, they haven't been given any reason why this matters because we just look like everyone else. And so, as we're considering growth, are there identifiable categories of holiness that you can say, today, I am more like God and less like the world. I am more set apart for God's purposes. I am more giving over to the unique difference about the way of Jesus than I am in fitting in 
while he's passing away. All right, two more for us to consider. Not fearful, but courageous self-forgetfulness, right? Chapter 2, verse 2, But though we had already suffered, we saw this, and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Well, why'd you do this, Paul? Why, after they, they severely flogged you and beat you with rods and threw you in prison for a night, did you show up in another town and, and go into the public setting of the synagogue and open up the Bible and say, the Messiah is Jesus Christ who suffered, even though that news would be treated as nonsense to these people? Why'd you do that? Well, I, I did it because I'm not concerned about me, but I'm concerned about God's work in them. Well, how'd you do that, Paul? I did it in the boldness of God. I did it because these threats and these dangers, they do not stop me. They do not leave me frightened in my tracks. All right, something for you guys to consider. You struggle with fear. You struggle with moments of being paralyzed and, and facing something that it, it looks like that, that's just going to be the end there and I can't move forward. You're prone to anxiety, to always be having these worries spinning about your head thinking through all that could maybe go wrong, thinking through all the ways that you're perceived. And, and if I said this, and if I did this, and if I messed up, oh my goodness, my world would just fall apart. And so you'd rather just stay where you're at than take any sort of risk. The reality is, the vast majority of us aren't facing what these guys faced here. And so when we take a risk... You know, it's, it's not like, hey, this person's going to end your life if you do this. It's like you might get kind of a little smirk. Eh. That, that's kind of the, the risk that we have to take. Somebody doing eh. <laughs> uh, flogging and, and death, not so much. But what, what, produces us, what produces this in us is self-forgetfulness. When we find our identity in other people and what they think of us, that will leave us locked in insecurity and fear. Right, for, for some of you here, if I called you to answer a question, you'd just kind of be shocked into silence. <laughs> and it's not because you don't know the answer to the question. It's because you fear, well, if I said something, and if it sounds somewhat stupid, what would, what would everybody think about me in this moment? And so you'd rather just stay where you're at and not answer. Listen, listen, there, there are... Moments after moments in life that you will have to be engaged in where God's calling you to do something, to be something, to move forward in his purposes. And there will always be reasons that fear present to you as to why you shouldn't do that. Why that's, that's a really bad idea. Just stay where you are. You take the kind of risk that Paul says here when you say with him, not that I consider my life of any value something that matters, something to protect at all costs, but I press on. 
I know the one who has won me, and I know what awaits me in him. And so I will go right into death. I will, I will die, as Paul did, under Julius Caesar, beheaded in Rome, because they cannot steal away from me what matters most. All they do is improve me, right? What, what, what are you going to do to Paul, right? Uh, we're going to let you live, Paul. All right, well, that's good because I got a purpose in Christ to fulfill. We're going to kill you, Paul. Well, that's far better because then I'll be with Jesus. It's like you just can't, you can't defeat the dude. What are you going to do to him? Because he's convinced. He has certain convictions built up in him. Truth about Christ that frees him. Frees him to not have to fight for his reputation to preserve himself. He can risk ridicule. He can risk everything that this life throws at him because he's been rid of himself. All right, finally, not an empty follower, but an example. All right, th- th- this, this was the example they had received from Paul, and so he says that they had become an example to others. Not only did they receive Paul's example, they received the example of being an example to other people. They received from him that that's what you're supposed to do. There, there, there are other people that are affected by you, by what you look like, by what you do. There's a relationship here. And so he says in chapter 1, verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus, for you received the word in much affliction, just like we did, with the joy in the Holy Spirit, so that, right? That word, so that, when you find that in the Bible, that means, and this was the result. And this is what happened next, right? This is the other end of the clickbait headline. Uh, so that, what happened next? I literally lost it. Uh, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Part of the concern here, when you, when you look at Jesus and you say, I want to be like you, and like the Thessalonians, you, you look at what you see in Paul and say, that's an authentic man. That's a real human being. That's somebody who's been released from all that the fall does to dehumanize us to really image God. And you say, I want to be like them. You also follow them into being something worth imitating, into wanting to be an example for other people as well. Which means two things. One, you, you, you live an exemplary life. And two, you're aware that your actions have an effect not just on you, but on those around you. And that, according to the Bible, that, that matters as well. You know, if you're only focused on your individual needs, you're going to be oblivious to the needs of others. And, and look, I've, I've, I've got the opportunity to, to think through life with teenagers and with you guys and, and just sit in your world, and, and I'm, I do have a concern about how individualistic some of you guys are and how you think through your decisions, and whatever they are, and big things and small things. You guys ask some good questions about how this affects you, and the thought about how this affects the people around you is, is it's like not something you're aware of. A part of wisdom is growing and knowing how to do this, But are you aware that your life sets an example? It sets forth a model to be followed and to be followed either toward what is life-giving or what is destructive. If you're just absorbed inside of you 
and trying to manage your own world and your own image and the people around you can be discouraged. They can be having a rough time. Maybe they, they need something of Christ communicated to them, but you're too busy in your own thoughts. You're too concerned about what somebody else said to you and how that's affecting you. Listen, when you're freed of that, you're freed to care. You're freed to care about the people around you. You're, you're, you're freed to draw them in, to bring encouragement, to experience fellowship. Fellowship doesn't take place when we are not freed from ourselves. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up, man. Here's how I want to lead us into some ministry tonight. You know, I think there are several ways that we could respond to this message. And listen, my, my hope, and I prayed this last night, is that whenever these words come out of my mouth, you hear more than these words. You hear more than human thoughts and human ideas here, right? You hear the voice of God, and you hear the Holy Spirit personalizing this. And so maybe, maybe I didn't use the exact illustration that lines up with where you are. Right? Don't, don't think that, oh, glad he didn't catch me. You know? uh, glad all these other people got a lot of problems with their life. Allowing the Holy Spirit to minister these things to us is, is to just to be honest and just say, Lord, Lord, help me to see me. Help me to see the ways that you, you're calling me forward. You're calling me to grow into Christ. And, and I know we could, we could offer an opportunity for us to identify that and, and respond. And, and we will have that this week. But I, I wanted tonight, I wanted us to just spend some more time in worship. Because what frees you from you is the glory of Jesus. And what makes you want him more, value what he has done in your place and what he did instead of you more and want to be more like him is seeing him, seeing him accurately, responding with affection for him, allowing him to be significant to you. And I just want to encourage us to to do this tonight to allow our worship, to allow our, our singing to God to be a response, to be an awareness of need, of ways that you need the Lord to change you, of ways that you need for Him to draw you in. And guys, I, I feel like worship is hindered when we're inside of our head and we're concerned about the people around us first and foremost. So I want to I welcome us to freedom tonight. Listen, we, we, we find in the Bible a variety of expressions of worship, and, and something that we've been studying this week is that when God does something in your heart, it shows up, right? When, there, when there's power in the room, the lights come on, there's, there's a visible effect that takes place. And we see in the Bible, we see people lifting their hands. We see people singing with joy. We see people kneeling and bowing down before our God. We see people jumping and dancing. They're just different ways that we express 
Not, not to put on some sort of show, right? We're just expressing honestly, this is going on inside of me. God's really big to me right now. And, and, and moments when I experience how big God is in worship, I could care less about me because I've grown to be really small. And yet, I'm also aware I'm really loved. So let's stand together. Eric's going to lead us in a time of singing, and I just want to encourage you to lean in to both receive and to pursue the Lord in this moment. Lord, help us, please. Lord, draw us in. Draw us into what we see of Christ. Humble us. May He be the center of what we love, of what excites us. But will we be free in responding to you tonight? We ask in Jesus' name.